Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Crosspoint. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, open it up to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. If you need a good Bible, we'd love for you to take one of the free ones we have at Guest Connections. Let that be our gift to you if you don't own a Bible at home. And in there, you'll find a card with some next steps and directions to know where and how to start reading your Bible if you're brand new to it. Some family news. I want to say congratulations to Doug and Jen Swanson, who are expecting number four in their family this fall. <clears throat> so opportunities abound in the Crosspoint Nursery for years and years to come. So we are in the final week of our series called The Adventure. We spent the past two months in the Song of Solomon. And in the series, the Bible has led us to talk about everything from attraction, dating, marriage, conflict, sexual intimacy. And I pray this series has been an encouragement to you, whether you are single or whether you are married. I also hope that this, if the series is impacting you, then you're sharing it with your family or friends who aren't cross-pointers. Uh, we don't just put the podcast out there for cross-pointers or for people who call this their church home. We put it out there for all. It's, a, it's an easy way to be driven to reach people to simply share the podcast with a friend. If it encouraged you, maybe it'll encourage their heart as well. And let me also challenge you in this, to share how the Word of God is changing and impacting your heart and life. Has this study of, song, uh, study of the book of Song of Solomon impacted your marriage or how you approach dating? If so, then I'd ask you to share your story using the email mystory, mystory at crosspointcc.org. We can keep your uh, testimony anonymous if you'd like, but personal stories of how God is changing us are a huge encouragement to the church family and to the church. So be quick to share your story. No matter if you feel like it's really little or really big, you don't know how God would use that in someone else's life. The first four weeks, we spent a lot of time talking about the adventure of finding love. These last three weeks, we've talked about the adventure of staying in love. In today's message, the verses we'll be looking at today, in a sense, are a combination of both of those. We'll look again at dating and parenting, but also be reminded that the flame in marriage is intended to increase and grow over the course of that marriage. So we're in Song of Solomon 8, 8 through 14 today. Last week, Bill Allison, a missionary that we support at Crosspoint, a friend of Crosspoint, uh, preached uh, on verses 5 through 7. And if you missed that, I'd encourage you to listen online. Those verses give us a definition of what marital love looks like. It says this, Song of Solomon 8, 6 through 7. Place me like a seal over your heart, <clears throat> like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We see the intensity and passion of marital love right there. We see that love in marriage is intimate and personal. We see this kind of love can't be uh, bought for a price and nothing can sweep it away. Nothing can quench its flame. There's nothing in that definition that gives the idea that marriage is intended to be lukewarm or uh, shallow, easily broken apart. And yet, that's what we sometimes experience in our marriages. That's sometimes what we experience in the marriages around us, the friends we have, the family that we have. That's the tendency of a marriage that's not centered on Christ and walking in humility to Him and under His loving authority. And in the Song of Solomon, we've been given this book inspired and written by God that gives us a radically different picture of, than what the world gives us or maybe what we saw growing up, maybe what we see around us now. And I pray that for those who are married today or might be married someday down the road, that the kind of love described in verses 
six through seven would describe your marriage and my marriage and your, your relationship with one another as husband and wife. And if you, <clears throat> maybe you feel, I mean, many of you, uh, some of you maybe in this room listening on the podcast, you listen to that description that those verses give and you think that that's some sort of mythical world where unicorns and care bears and leprechauns live, all right? And, and that you will never get there again. Maybe, maybe you, oh yeah, well, when we were married here, I remember it like that. Or maybe you've never been there. And, and I pray that the Lord would move you step by step, surrender by surrender, if you will, closer to that picture. I've said it often in the series, but the door is always open when it comes to asking for help and counsel. Don't wait to the last possible second to seek help. Do it early. It's humbling to ask for help. It is. I've had to ask for help before. It's humbling, right? But in the Bible, we are told that, the God, that, that God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. It's said multiple times. And our marriages are in desperate need of his grace and power. So don't allow your personal pride to destroy your marriage. All right? Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 8. We'll see this flashback to the childhood of Solomon's wife. <clears throat> it says, verse 8, We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? You might notice that in this book, her father has never been mentioned. We're not really sure why as to uh, the reason of that or if there really is even a reason. But here we see her brothers are speaking Flashing back to her childhood when she was a little girl and her brothers were saying, how are we going to help protect and guard our sister? How are we going to know when, when she's ready to be married? How are we going to help her navigate relationships with boys? Now, this is the second time the brothers are mentioned in this book. In chapter 1, she says in verse 6 that her mother's sons or her brothers were angry with her and made her take care of the vineyards. She became darkened by the sun we read because of the work being out underneath the sun and in the vineyards. And in the culture at that time, that uh, darkness was actually not an outwardly beautiful thing. And she says that because of her work in the vineyard, that she neglected her own vineyard or her own body, in other words, was neglected. And then, then the brothers go on in verse 9, in a sense, in chapter 8, answering this question, how are we going to help her pursue a relationship with another man in a way that is God-honoring? They say, if she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. So here the brothers are saying there are two kinds of young women. Women who are walls. If she is a wall, she is a woman who walks with integrity. She does not find her identity in another man. She does not need another man to complete her. Is not looking for a man to uh, give her what only Jesus can give her security, peace, joy, forgiveness, salvation. This does not necessarily mean that she is cold and unfriendly and rude to all men. Not at all. If your desire is to be married someday, that approach of being aloof and unfriendly may not serve you well in the pursuit of finding a husband. But it does mean that she is a wall and her heart is not going to be easily swayed by the smolder of any man. That before she lets someone into the courts of her heart, if you will, she will examine his character, if, the, if he knows Jesus, if the person that he is in public is the same one that he is in private. The brothers say that if she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. In other words, we will battle al alongside her. 
And because she is a wall, we will adorn her and praise her, and we will encourage her that how, in how she was approaching a relationship with another man and how that has been an honorable pursuit. The brothers then talk about another group of women, women who are doors. If she is a door, she is prone to open the door of her heart or her body to any guy who shows interest in her. And I'm not just talking sexually here, but emotionally. A door doesn't necessarily mean that she is easy. It does mean that she is easily prone to go head over heels over a guy way too fast. And at the first sign that he looks her way, she is susceptible to the advances of any man who knocks because she is looking to find in another man what only a relationship with Jesus can provide. She gets into this dysfunctional pursuit of love and acceptance, but not through a relationship with a heavenly, perfect Savior, but from men who may or may not have her best interests in mind. Women who are doors might have experienced abuse in their past, have this father's wound on, on their hearts, or she might just kind of be uh, naturally prone or wired that way. Maybe she was never appropriately loved in a Christ-like way by another man. And so the brothers say that if she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I love that. In other words, we will stand to help protect her. If she will not be naturally prone to protect herself, then we will stand up and help protect her. If she won't barricade the door, then we will with panels of cedar. If they want to talk to our sister, then they're going to first need to talk to us. We will make sure she is not taken advantage of. I know in this room, there are young men who've been given the privilege to be a brother to one or more sisters. I also know there are times when that relationship does not feel like a privilege, so to speak, (laughs) that you might be prone to a fight or a disagreement or two, maybe a scuffle, some careless words being shot at from one another. Maybe you're at each other's throats every so often. Maybe I know that because I'm raising a a son and a daughter. But here's the thing. Take a lesson from the Song of Solomon and be a brother who will stand guard for his sister. If you have a sister, God wants to use that relationship to train and prepare you for your future. So you learn to protect your future wife by protecting your sister. You learn to pray for your future wife by praying for your sister. You learn to listen to your future wife by listening to your sister. I, I know it's hard, but maybe you'll just have to replay that part of it. You, need to, you, you learn to serve your future wife by serving your sister. I don't care if you're younger or older than your sister. That doesn't matter. If you're both adults even, what matters is that God has providentially divinely placed you as a brother to a sister. And that relationship is not one that you can shirk off or delegate to somebody else. So do you know which guy or guys has eyes for your sister? If you're in school together and you hear someone talking about your sister, are you standing up and defending her? Are you engaging into that conversation? When she begins to date someone, are you having a sit-down conversation with this guy? And I don't care if you're 10 years younger, if you're 10 years old, if you're 10 years older than this other guy. Are you having this conversation that expresses how you feel about your sister? Even if at moments you don't feel that way. Are you you having this conversation? Are you checking his motives? What are his intentions? Getting to know him? Asking him questions? Parents, if you're raising sons and daughters, I encourage you to 
cultivate this kind of <clears throat> environment and love in your family. I can tell you that our, our son's ears have perked up a bit when he has heard that some guy has been unkind or said rude things to his sister. That doesn't mean that he also doesn't say rude things to his sister or vice versa, all right? But it does mean that when it comes to family and siblings, that you're trying to create a culture where you stand back to back to one another in unity with one another, wearing the same jersey, playing on the same team, rah, 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 we're on the same team, right? Verse 9 again, if she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. So what about us as parents? How do we help shepherd our children through the maze that is dating and relationships? Here are a few thoughts, and some of these I might have already said in the series, but I kind of forget what I say over the course of two months, so um, take it with a grain of salt if I've repeated some stuff. But the first one, fathers, take the lead. If you have a daughter, date her early and often. If she is older and you didn't do this earlier, then start this week. It's never too late. I don't care if she's 18, 25, 15. Let the standard not only... Um, <clears throat> set the standard not only on that date, but through your way of life, of what it looks like to be a godly man who follows Jesus. Such an example and testimony will serve her extremely well as she looks for a man to marry. It will help her in her pursuit of, of being, more than, being more like a wall than a door because she will be, have been given all the affection and the words of affirmation that she needs through you as her dad. It's the natural tendency of dads that as daughters hit the teenage years to decrease the amount of physical affection and encouraging words that you give your daughter, the separation begins. And I would encourage you to fight that separation, All right? That you still, this is not the time to disengage and step away. Your job is not done as a dad. It's actually only, you're being called to step up to even a greater degree. So you still hug her and you still kiss her forehead and you still lay with her in bed just listening to her heart and you still go on dates and you still tell her that she's beautiful and you still give her all the affirming words, words of life, words of destiny, words of vision, words of her identity in Christ. You pour into her those kind of truths. Fathers, if you have a son, set the standard of how to treat a woman with how you serve and love your wife. They're watching you. They are watching you. So set the standard and set the standard high. If you're single, they're watching you. Your children are watching you. So set the standard of what it looks like to pursue another woman in a godly way. Raise your sons to honor women and not take take advantage of them, to treat them as precious and remind your son early and often that women were created in the image and likeness of God. And they have dignity, value, and worth. Last summer, I read this little book by Dennis Rainey called Interviewing Your Daughter's Date. I'd encourage you, um, if you're fathers, to read it. If you're ultimately any parents, single moms, to read this so that you can interview your daughter's date someday. And, And I simply want to read to you the eight points of this interview, kind of an outline of what that conversation looks like between a father and a young man or a man who wants to date your daughter. And some of you are thinking, I, I wish I would have done that, you know, X amount of months or years before, before my daughter started dating him. Well, you can still do it. It's not too late. Don't listen to the enemy that wants to tell you, well, you know, it's past due. Don't listen to that. So have a conversation this week or the next month. 
So the eight points of this interview, kind of an outline, so to speak. The first one, he says, a, a woman is God's creation, a beautiful creation, a fine creation. He might say, you've certainly noticed that my daughter's pretty attractive and has a cute figure, haven't you? Just kind of getting that on the table, all right? I look forward to this, by the way. <clears throat> Number two, the attraction of a young man to a young woman is both normal and good. You want to affirm that. It's not, it's not gross, all right? It's not dirty. You might say, I'd like to, I'm glad you like her and you want to spend time with her. Number three, I understand and remember what the sex drive of a young man is like. Again, you just want to get that on the table. Get that on the table. Put all the cards on the table. Let's get, talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, he, he might say, believe me, I've been there. I know what you're dealing with. Number four, I'm going to hold you accountable for your relationship with my daughter. So expect me to be asking to see if you're dealing uprightly with her. Number five, I'm going to challenge you to purity. I want you to guard her innocence, not just her virginity, but I also want you to guard your own innocence. Number six, I want you to respect and uphold the dignity of my daughter by keeping your hands off of her. Keeping this one precaution in mind will keep you from getting into further trouble. Number seven, do you understand all that I've just said to you? Are we clear on what I'm expecting of you and what you're expecting of me? And back and forth. Number eight, when you're a dad someday, I hope you will challenge your own children to abide by these standards and that you will interview your daughter's dates. Can I count on you to do that? All right. So you're just trying to have a conversation. Um, if you're a son, if you're raising a son, challenge your son that if the dad, if the girl's dad doesn't ask for an interview, you ask for an interview. You ask to have a conversation. Man up and have that. All right? So fathers take the lead. The next thought, talk about dating and relationships before the potential of them even occur. If you don't begin to talk about dating, if the first time you talk about it is when so-and-so asks your daughter on a date or when your son wants to go ask her on a date, if that's the first conversation you have, it is not a healthy place to start because you're already behind. You got to consider a wall and a door. You can frame up a door. You can create a door pretty fast with a sledgehammer, right? To lay a wall, to, pour, to dig and pour a footing, to lay the foundation of a wall takes much, much longer. So don't rush that. Instead, talk about it long before your children hit puberty and their emotions and hormones or attitude and attitudes are all over the place, all right? And again, if you feel like you're behind on this, it's not too late. It's not too late. Begin to have conversations now. Even if they're engaged in dating and you're trying to backtrack, that's fine. God's grace is bigger than that. So start having the conversations now. Another thought, I would encourage you to not set a specific age when it comes to your children uh, beginning to date. Like, you know, well, 16, you can date. What we tell our kids when they ask, when can we date, is say, we, 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 we've told them for years, we will not put an age on it. Instead, we'll be looking at their character, their walk with Christ, their sense of responsibility, their humility to authority. Are they walking in the light? Are they pursuing integrity? Is their identity in Christ growing? Do they know who and whose they are at such a degree where the wall is strong and the door just won't flip open with the slightest wind? Last thought here. Parents, as you walk with your children through relationships and dating, give the why behind the boundaries and rules that you give them. Don't just lay out the rules, but instead have some conversation about the why. Why is there a curfew in the first place? Why are you asking them to not be alone in private? 
right? What the why behind that, help them to understand, come alongside them. Don't just come down from on high to them with your two stone tablets, all right? I still remember hearing this phrase from my mother-in-law, my, 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 my now mother-in-law when I was dating her daughter, nothing good happens after midnight. It's true. I also heard, <clears throat> I'm going to get shot for this one, I'm going to do it anyways. I also heard no fondling at Fond du Lac. Um, <laughs> It's true, too. It's true as well. So, all right. All right. Uh, if, so if you're a student and still at home and living under the roof of your parents' authority, then respect and honor the boundaries they set up. I get that we will just naturally push and resist, and some of those, depending on how you're wired, that, that, that those boundaries, that will grind up against you. I get that. You may not agree with them. You, I can guarantee you won't agree with all of them. But honor them. Trust that your parents have your best interests in mind, your future interests in mind. Trust that your parents have often walked a harder road and learned difficult lessons, and they're trying to keep you and guard you from those. If they're not setting up boundaries for you, then ask a leader around here and kind of self-impose some boundaries onto your own life and onto your own dating relationships and ask somebody here who loves you to hold you accountable. It's, good. it's for your good and for the good of your future marriage. Uh, verse 10 she says, I am a wall, my breasts are like towers, thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Again, she is flashing back and she has become a woman and she has said that how she walked through life as a young woman was as a wall. Even as she physically developed and men noticed her, she would not be like a door, but rather as a wall. Remember in chapter one, she, we, we saw her allude to this truth. She talked about in verse seven that she would not be like a, a veiled woman or a prostitute in order to get a man. She would not stoop to that level or try to obtain the affections of a man by giving herself away physically. We've seen this beauty of her character on display throughout this book. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4 speaks to the same truth. It says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. God's word says to women that your inward character matters more than your outward beauty. Your growing devotion to and love for Jesus matters more. So believe me when I say that as a husband to be married to a woman whose character is growing in Christ-likeness, it's attractive and appealing. It's an oasis in my life. It's a shade tree for my soul. Women, you want a man to fall in love with you for who you are, your character, your soul, you want the relationship based on friendship first. Men, you want to pursue a woman not just because she is outwardly beautiful, attractive, and hot, but because you see in her a woman that is pursuing Jesus and the Holy Spirit is producing in her characteristics or fruit such as love and patience and kindness, faithfulness, goodness. And because of her character and how she pursued to be, and how she pursued to be a wall and not a door, she caught the attention of Solomon's eyes. And it brought him peace and contentment. Verse 11 and 12. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its own fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruit. Her husband was an extremely wealthy man. He owned vineyards that made him lots of money. And she is saying that although he has all those things, the greatest treasure that Solomon has is me, his wife. 
She gave herself completely to Solomon, not only on the honeymoon, but year in and year out for their lifetime. And why did she do that? Why did she know that Solomon prized her above anything or anyone else? Was she just this arrogant, self-absorbed diva? Not at all. Rather, she is saying that because of how he pursued her and loved her over and over through all those years. He didn't stop after getting a ring on it, and he didn't stop when the demands of work went higher and higher. He just kept loving her. And she knows that she knows that she knows that she is the object of Solomon's affection. Verse 13, you who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. No one's super clear on what this particular verse means, but we can take away from the truth that that Solomon's wife had friends around her, not only as a child, but now as a grown woman, as a wife. So community with others was important. If you're a single woman, and then you begin to date another man, if, if that man begins to slowly or abruptly pull you away from community and relationships with your family, with your friends, that is not a healthy or good step. Now, over the course of time, especially as you intermarriage the relationship with one another, it should take precedence. That's a healthy thing. But when a man and woman, when they're, whether they're dating or single, when they isolate themselves... It does not lead to healthy things. Nothing um, healthy grows in isolation. You know, you you find the random potato sack in the corner of the basement sitting all by itself. That thing does not grow healthy over the course of time as it sits in in the dark by itself. All right? It can become very dysfunctional. And then you experience, when you experience brokenness, then you're just kind of um, absent of community around you to support you. So single women, especially the students, a man should be more than okay with getting to know your family. They should be having dinner with your family, all right? With your extended family, with, your, with the uncles and the aunts and the grandparents. One way a relationship walks in the light and avoids secrecy is to walk in community. So then finally, verse 14. <clears throat> in a sense, these last six verses of the book capture both the early years prior to dating and now fast forwarding to the end of the marriage. This, this vision for the future, this capturing God's design for a lifetime of marriage. And she says, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or, or like a young stag on the spice laden mountains. In short, the intimacy in their marriage is as strong as ever years after the honeymoon. He is still her young stag, and she is still inviting him to the spice-laden mountains. Amen. Let it be so. Again, I will ask you, and we think God doesn't care about the sexual and tender intimacy between a husband and wife? We think that he is absent on this, that his voice is absent? We think we, we have to go outside of God's boundaries to find sexual satisfaction and fulfillment? Our sin nature will always try to pull us toward that tendency. But in doing so, we lift up sex as a God or as an idol. Remember God's heart that we've talked about throughout the series is that we would approach intimacy in marriage as a gift for a husband and wife to enjoy with one another. A gift that he created, designed, and has given to us. A gift that is to be protected and honored prior to marriage and protected and honored within marriage. 
We have seen from the beginning to the end how Solomon and his wife have pursued one another. When, when I'm away from you, I want to be with you. If they would have had cell phones, they'd be sending texts and using emojis, all right? They'd be writing the notes. They'd be stopping the other in the midst of a task just to say, I love you. So don't ever grow tired or weary in pursuing the one spouse that God has called you to love for a lifetime. Do not grow weary in, that, in what God has called you to do there. Personally, these verses in chapter 8 hit me as a father and a husband. I have the privilege and joy of being a dad to two children. Our daughter Maddie is turning 15 next month. Eli will turn 13 in June. So when it comes to dating and parenting, we're in a season of parenting that we just absolutely love. Heather and I have been married for nearly 18 years. We're, we're only about six years away from potentially being empty nesters, depending on post-high school kind of things. And, and we would tell you that for the first 15 years of parenting, it just seemed to fly by. And so we can only imagine that it picks up speed these last six years. That's what we've heard from any of our friends that are a little bit further along in the parenting journey than, with, than us. But the speed of, of, um, uh, seems to pick up as your children age. And when the kids leave our house someday, I don't want to be looking at my wife, Heather, and thinking, who are you? I, I, know you're, I know you're their mom, but I don't want to be looking at them like that. I, I, don't want to ha- I don't want to have to rekindle a marital love after the kids leave, but actually while the kids are still in our own home. Heather and I absolutely love being parents. We love the stage we're in. Uh, the, the kids bring us so much joy and teach us so much about our faith or about ourselves. And yet I'm not going to lie to you because, you know, it's one of the baseline goals of preaching is not to have the pastor lie to you. <clears throat> but I will tell you that as much as we love having our children at home, Heather and I are also looking forward to when our children leave our home. We just are. It will be extremely hard not to see their faces day in and day out and hug their necks and kiss their faces, but it will make the times that they come home that much sweeter, that we go and visit and stalk them and it'll make them that much sweeter. But it will be, so it's, so it's going to be hard but it's also going to be a blessing because it's going to free Heather and I up to pursue one another in a, in a new way. We have this list going of places around the U.S. that are empty nest places that we will not spend money on two other people to attend with us, but we will spend money on two people, husband and wife, to attend those places. All right? The house is going to be quieter, but it'll also be filled with the husband and wife who love one another deeply and are still intimate and tender in our affection with one another. That's our dream, our vision of what we want our marriage to look like for years and years to come, years from now. To get there, to pursue that kind of vision, to be ready for that new season means that we will have to be very intentional about how we love one another in 2014. Like, like today, this afternoon, this evening, this week, two weeks from now. We're going to have to be really intentional. Last night, we're on a date, and we're asking one another how we can love one another well this last week. Or this, I'm sorry, love one another well in the week to come. What are things that we're just kind of not saying to one another, but we need to hear? That was a good conversation. But that, doesn't, <clears throat> that kind of pursuit of one another, it just doesn't come naturally to us. And that's because we have the sin nature. We have this selfish tendency in us. You can't have the kind of marriage, let alone the kind of intimacy described in the Song of Solomon without Christ, without living fully surrendered to his love and truth. God cares deeply about your relationship with one another, so much, though, that he's given us this book of the Bible that reminds us of God's design. 
The love between a husband and wife is to reflect the love between Jesus and us. And as we live surrendered to Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to transform and empower our hearts, our attitudes, all those kind of things, our desires are made new. And I don't know about you, but I'm in desperate need of God's power and strength if I'm going to love my wife the way God calls me to love her. I can't do this on my own strength, and neither can you. And many of you have tried. It's just not working, is it? Heather bought a book a couple years ago called 25 Surprising Marriages. It basically covers 25 marriages of significant people in the history of the church, people like uh, Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, C.S. Lewis. It's like this inside look about how their marriages operated and how they met and the conflicts they had and how they were really similar and vastly different than one another and how their wives were often just this huge... um, One of the chapters is called Rounding Out the Edges of the Diamond, just kind of uh, working through the rough aspects of their personality with one another. It's fascinating to me because these are people sometimes we kind of lift up and pedestal up, and then you see them as a husband or a wife, and it's just... um, It's fascinating, but I want to read a couple quotes to you. Listen to this quote regarding Charles and Susie Spurgeon. It gives us another picture of what a lifetime of marriage looks like. In a sermon on marriage, Charles Spurgeon mentioned that a model marriage is founded on pure love and cemented in mutual esteem. He was describing his own marriage. Their object in life is common. There are points where their affections are so intimately unite that none could tell which is first and which is second. Their wishes blend, their hearts indivisible. By degrees, they come to think very much the same thoughts. Intimate association creates conformity. I have known this to become complete, that at the same moment, the same utterance has leaped to both their lips. If heaven be found on earth, they have it. It sounds like the two becoming one flesh over the course of a lifetime. And then the other quote I want to share with you is from Ruth Graham, wife of Billy Graham. Ruth was asked to give advice to a young woman about to be married. Said Ruth, don't expect your husband to be what only Jesus can be. Don't expect him to give you the security, the joy, the peace, the love that only God himself can give you. Keep in mind, she's talking about Billy Graham. (laughs) Billy Graham. This is his wife saying this. And here's Ruth Graham saying, Jesus is still my number one. He is who I'm devoted to. He is who I love, who has given me salvation, joy, and peace. Jesus is ultimate in her life. And I guarantee Billy would have said the same thing. The greatest way that you can grow as a husband and wife or as a future husband and wife is to live in a way where Jesus is ultimate in your heart, that he is supreme and he is almighty. Some of you here don't know Jesus. And today is the day that you need to give your life to him. And if that's you and God is calling you to repent and believe the good news, I would encourage you, invite you to talk to myself or Eric or a leader around here, a prayer volunteer at the front after the service, someone here that you know. Don't walk out of here ignoring God's call on your life to save you because you're not quite sure of what's going to happen this week. To the single listening, Pastor Tommy Nelson says this to singles. There's something worse than being single and wishing you were married. It's being married wishing you were single. So don't rush it. Marriage may or may not be in your future. I hope you didn't amen that at the wrong time. Um, 
Please don't walk out of this series thinking that God only loves the married folks. God only loves the families. I think God's used some single people. Oh, wait, uh, Apostle Paul, that's right, yeah. I think he used them in a big way. So please don't walk out of here thinking that God only loves the married folks, and that's guaranteed God's will for your life. And to the married folks, do you have a vision for your marriage? Your marriage that is 10, 20, 30 years from now? Are you allowing Jesus to rule over your heart now, today, this week, in 2014? So that that vision of marital romance and intimacy and friendship will be there for years and years and years. We're going to celebrate communion in a minute. And I want to encourage you that in the midst of communion, to not only recommit your life afresh to Jesus, but also to one another if you're married. For some of you, unconfessed sin is absolutely killing your marriage. And so you need to confess your sin, not only to God, but to one another. The apathy, the, maybe it's apathy, maybe it's secret sin, maybe it's pride, bitterness. As I prepared for today, I also believe that for many of you, you need to be reminded that we serve a God of hope and power. But if you feel like your marriage is a far cry from the picture of Song of Solomon, that we serve a God of hope, that no situation or sin is too great or strong for him, that our God is bigger, stronger, mightier, more majestic, more powerful than anything you will face or that you are facing. The question remains for us is this, will we ask for his help? Will we ask for his help or will we keep trying to fix it on our own? Will, we, will Jesus be ultimate in our life? Will we respond to his invitation to follow him and not ourselves? Will we place Jesus up as this priority, central to our life? You don't need to be a member of Crosspoint to take communion. The Bible says you need to be a believer in Christ. You need to have turned from your way of living, turned toward Jesus, trusting in him and his work on the cross. If you were to say, how are you, how are you to enter heaven? You would list nothing of what you've accomplished or done, but only what's been accomplished or done for you at the cross, in the resurrection. So in communion, we remember Romans 5, 8 through 11, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we are still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So there are two tables in the back and two stations at each of those tables. We'll walk back using the outside aisles and then come back using the center aisle. Take a piece of the bread, a cup of the juice, and either return to your seat or I invite you to kneel up here at the stage. There's nothing special about the stage, not at all. What is special sometimes is putting action to what's going on inside of you. And so if there's something that, that draws you, if, if, if it just makes sense for you to worship up here, to kneel and pray together if you're married or if you're an individual, to, to get before God in this way on your knees, if that action is a reflection of where your heart's at, to reaffirm with one another, to recommit to one another, I'd encourage you to do that. So if you're married, hold one another's hands, confess, recommit, reaffirm, pray with one another. And we'll then eat the bread and drink the juice together as a church family. So let's stand up and take communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Romans 5 and 6 says this, May the God who gives endurance, encouragement, give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This next couple weeks, I just want to mention a couple things. Easter and Good Friday are in two weeks. Um, I'd encourage you to be a part of those services. If you're here that weekend, I would also encourage you to invite a friend to join you on those services. It's a huge opportunity to be driven to reach people. And so um, it'll be a fun service, 10 a.m. all together celebrating Easter. And then Friday, Good Friday, potluck is at 5.30, service at 7 o'clock. And finally, this next Sunday, you have a postcard in your program with all the details, but it's going to be a special morning together. We're setting aside a, a whole Sunday to talk about what God has done over the last three years to cast vision for what's upcoming, to celebrate baptisms. We'll sing together and we'll be hearing from the Mexico team, some members of the team that served on that mission team. All of that will happen during the service. And then from 9 to 9.30, we're going to have a prayer walk here around the building, praying for different ministries and areas of uh, what Crosspoint is doing. So I'd encourage you to be a part of that. We'll have a prayer guide to kind of guide you through, lead you through prayer. And um, I would encourage you to be a part of that. And then 9.30 to 10, we'll have donuts and um, showing the video of the Mexico team, the pictures and slideshow of what we, took, what we did down there. So why get here an hour early? Is because prayer changes things. Because we're called to follow Jesus together and be a part of one body and one mission and because people matter. We long to see God do great things in and through us, not for our glory, but for God's. We long to see God do great things in this community and in this world. So that's why we gather to pray That's why we gather to fellowship together. So see you next week. Have a great week. God bless.